When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Uh, Martin Luther somewhere says that the most important word in the Mass is the word for you. This bread is for you. This blood is for you. This uh, forgiveness is for you. You can have all the Latin words and German words and English words you want, but it hasn't scored unless the person knows it's for you. to the Marty Party. <laughs> I had to. I'm sorry. It's so good. I knew I'd get a laugh out of you. Yeah. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. Um, this, yeah, I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. And we've got the Marty Party. We have the Marty Party here. So this, this guy, um, my dad told me about him years ago. And so like this, this, his name has been in my brain for a while. This guy's been around since forever, man. Because when I dusted off my old copy of Honest to God by Bishop John C. Robinson, it was written in like the 60s. Whoa. Martin Marty had footnotes in that book. So he was already in full scholarly effect all the way back in the freaking 60s. Dang. And he is sharp as a tack to this day. So why we got Martin Marty on here today, man? Well, this is kind of a special episode. So this is obviously the, the first episode that is uh, releasing in the month of October. And the reason that that is important is because October 31st of this month, 1517, was the day that basically changed Christianity forever. Um, It's the date that, obviously, there's a lot more that went into it, as we'll talk about, but that's the date that Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the the door. At Wittenberg. In Wittenberg, where I've been. It's beautiful. And, uh, and so thereby setting in motion, essentially the Protestant Reformation. Yep. So this is the 500th, 500th? Yeah. Sorry. Five freaking hundred. Uh, anniversary. Which is a, a very meaningful number of years for Phyllis Tickle. Yes, it I is. I really get into, but <laughs> I know. Uh, but, um, Martin Marty, as you'll, as you'll, uh, see is, uh, as my dad referred to him and was not wrong, um, is a walking encyclopedia. What did James Martin say on our podcast? He said, Martin Marty has forgotten more about the Reformation than any of us would dare to ever remember. <laughs> yes. He's forgotten more about this stuff than we'll ever know. Like, literally, we get on with him, and, and as you'll see, we ask him, like, we just asked him the first question, and it was almost just, like, firing up an engine. Oh, my gosh. And we're like, whoa. Yep. So, it, it was an absolute pleasure just to, to have him just kind of, like, articulate, you know, uh, 
some of the important moments of the Reformation, why this was crucial to the rest of Christianity, especially, obviously, Protestant Christianity, um, and, and kind of the intentions that Martin Luther had uh, 500 years ago. And how all that stuff 500 years ago is still spiritually alive today in what we're experiencing for even doing this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like he gets the, it. the reach. This guy gets it. Dude, it was it was it was so fun. But um the book is called October 30 31 1517 Martin Luther and the Day That Changed the World. Um the foreword was, was actually written by um another guest that we had not too long ago, about a month month and a half ago, uh, Father James Martin, who's one of our favorite guests that we've had. So So good. Really cool book. It's it's very uh very short, very cool um cover and everything, but it's it's basically about the relationship between the Lutheran Church and the aftermath and the Catholic Church and and the healing process that's taken place um, over the last 500 years and how it, it literally has taken nearly 500 years uh, for them to um, essentially uh, see eye to eye on a lot of the issues that Martin Luther brought on forward. most of them. Yeah. I think maybe even all of them at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's crazy. It just goes to show like how slow moving uh, change can be sometimes. So yeah, it is. It is slow moving. We like to hang on to our egos and our biases and and all that stuff and define ourselves against one another, which is something we're not super big on here. Right. So without further ado, let's talk some Reformation then and now. Yeah. With Martin, freaking Marty. A dream fulfilled brings life to it. How do you know when to let it go? Or hold on tight for a miracle. All those times I hoped and prayed, my time would come, but never. Okay, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Uh, Dr. Martin Marty, thank you so much for, for being here. Glad to be with you. Well, before we, before we get uh, get into your new book here, uh, this is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 thesis uh, to the front doors of that church in Germany. Woo! And uh, before we get into that, though, um, you know, a lot of our listeners come from a myriad of different backgrounds. Some are, you know, uh, a lot of them are Protestant, but come from different denominations. Uh, some of them are even. Uh, you know, agnostic, but spiritually curious. So for, for those out there who don't know a lot about the Reformation, um, could you maybe start off with like a high-level overview of, uh, of Martin Luther and, and kind of what he did to, to uh, kind of kickstart the Reformation? Okay. Um, when the Reformation, as we're measuring it now, 500 years ago this year, uh, when it occurred, um, Europe was really ready for change. There had been a kind of a synthesis, people having to agree and obey the law and obey the church and all that, and they were doing that, more or less. But uh, you're seeing the rise of nationalism. Germany is taking a new shape, and Italy is taking a new shape, and France is taking a new shape, and the people within it are in it all. And uh, the printing press has been invented, so people are communicating better than before. Everything's ready to pop. And among all the <laughs> poppers... There were people in England, uh, John Wycliffe, uh, for example, who started things in uh, Czech, today's Czech Republic, Jan Hus. So Luther wasn't all alone, but he 
uh, had the good or bad fortune of uh, lighting the mast that blew, blew the thing up, up and apart. And the uh, issue really was the power of the church to uh, open the door of heaven or the send you to hell. Um, on, in a way, that's that's prefigured in the Bible. Um, the church hadn't been developed yet, but there it is. And, but now it was a combination of what we today would say is church and state were united and had tremendous power. And among the discontented people were a young monk, a friar is the technical word for him, not a monk, but a friar, um, who was restless because he'd been reading the Bible, he'd been reading these other reformers, and um, put it all together, timing it for All Saints Day, which is a great uh, day even today. Uh, whether, he, whether he nailed what he did to a church door or mailed it to his Archbishop Superior is a controversy uh, among historians that we really don't have to worry about right now. <laughs> but it, it happened October 31st. It's dated from that. And no one could have foreseen how it, how it spread. Uh, mentioned the printing press, but things really moved fast from there. And all the discontented groups and all the far-seeing groups uh, took off from there. They didn't all agree with Luther. There were things going on in Switzerland, for example, Netherlands. But uh, he he was the sort of magic, uh, charismatic figure around whom it congealed. So yeah. one of the big things that I've always thought, found interesting is that Luther Luther never intended on on starting his own you know denomination per se. He he really just wanted to open dialogue and and I. I it, it, you know, if I'm if I'm correct here, he, he even says at the beginning of the 95 thesis, he even points out, he says, you know, for those of you that cannot be present, you know, like you can respond by letter. He he wanted to start a conversation, right? Oh yeah, very much so. Um, I didn't, I don't think he could foresee where all this was going to lead. Uh, he took advantage of it when it did, but uh, he thought of himself, I think, all his life as a good Catholic. He thought he was reforming the church. Uh, he thought that. Uh, for a while, he thought even the Pope would be on his side. Uh, I'm cleaning house for you, Madam Pope. Uh, so it, it, it did surprise him. But once it started, he was unstoppable. Uh, he uh, his, his collected writings amount to, I think, 150 volumes. Uh, wow. Single-space, double-column. <laughs> he produced some, some publication on average every 14 days for the rest of his life. So uh, he really was busy. Man, it's uh, it's incredible to me just uh, how much you talked about in that early intro was was packed into it, almost like a powder keg of of change, just ready um, to happen. Uh, so much of what Martin Luther did, it seemed to center around how to read the Bible um, or who can read the Bible. And I was wondering okay. if you could you could kind of comment and, and draw some of the implications of that out. Yes. Well, the Bible was pretty much a closed book for everybody but the clergy. Um, first of all, most people couldn't read, so it was a very small elite of people who read it all. And uh, the church in general wasn't interested in having the Bible read because it had figured out ways to teach it on its own. Not always malice, it's just how it happened. But um, uh, anticipating what Luther did were movements, things called the humanists and others, 
a great scholar, the Sederis Erasmus in the Netherlands would be typical, one of the great scholars of the millennium. And they just delighted in uh, ancient languages and uh, so on. So they went back and asked what did Plato teach, what did Aristotle teach. But most of all, they were interested in what did the Church Fathers teach. And that's where Luther organized his energies. And behind them all, of course, was the Bible itself. Uh, you heard, I grew up in Sunday schools where you heard stories about how the Bible was chained so nobody could see it. Well, the Bible was changed because it chained because it was a very expensive, precious book, and they want somebody running off with it. But uh, literacy was quite rare, and literacy and the Reformation and Catholic reform, too. Not everybody left the Catholic Church. Uh, all occurred within about a 20-, 30-year period. So one of the things that I find really interesting uh, that you talk about in your book is where Martin Luther uh, kind of talks about um, repentance and kind of his his take on repentance, um, meaning more of a change of heart and, and the whole life of repentance versus a one-time declaration in a church building. Yeah, for, for me, as a lifelong Lutheran and Christian, I still can never get over how many shadows and things <laughs> with which one lives. And when I grew up, we're always told to repent. Uh, Ash Wednesday, we repent, and uh, some of the same holidays that Jews use for repenting, we Christians use. And uh, every uh, Mass or church service includes an act of repentance. But the image I had of it always was, um, it was a bunch of laws, and this is one way of getting right with them. And most of all, emotionally, uh, how how dreary it was. Uh, it was a very sad event, repenting. You're supposed to examine yourself and find out how awful you are. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and uh, people like Luther, uh, he was very virtuoso at that. Uh, in my book, I even quote, I hope it's allowed on the radio, uh, that his main confessor, Harry Luther, talk for hours about the terrible sins. You know, what can you do in a monastery to pile up a lot of sins? And the uh, great uh, confessor finally says, Brother Martin, you don't have to confess every fart. <laughs> because uh, Luther was reaching all the way around, and uh, he ran out of things that he was really doing badly. Well, what, what his, I think his big discovery was, and that's in the first thesis, <clears throat> when our Lord and Master Jesus said, repent, um, he willed that our whole life would be an act of repentance. Now, as long as it's a dreary, gruesome act, that's no fun at all. When I was a little boy, I used to watch people go to the to Mass, uh, in our case, Lutheran Communion, and you hear all these words of forgiveness and so on. And when it was done, they'd all come back to their pews, slouching and grumpy. Uh, when When more of us Lutherans and other Protestants started catching on to the wonders of repentance, I remember uh, at a minister's conference, I, I was an ordained minister, I am an ordained minister, and I was uh, attending a pastoral conference when they announced all these new things that are supposed to happen, and among things that we were going to have mass communion on Easter morning. At that time, we would have it maybe once a month. Well, the older pastors got up and said, why do you want to ruin Easter with a sad event like communion? <laughs> yeah, it's just opposite. Well, in the midst of all that, uh, what has always struck me is uh, the, man, the man I use most of all to uh, find the right definition for it, yeah, Max Scheler. 
S-C-H-E-L-E-R, uh, on whom Pope John Paul II wrote his doctoral thesis. He's a great philosopher, sometimes Jew, sometimes Christian, sometimes neither, but a really great thinker. And he really posed, if I can answer greatly, what goes on if you want to experience it. You you can you, you think you're repenting when you say, alas, what did my ancestors do? Uh, I, I preached in Columbus, Ohio on October 12th, the 500th anniversary of Columbus and landing in a, an island uh, called the Discovery of America. And I was to preach at the main service of a gathering there. And uh, they, everything they sent me was how... how penitent we are and how dreary this is. And, and I said, forget it. Uh, instead of going over all that, do something different. Well, they had great imagination. They ended up having an international flower festival in which the nations would uh, celebrate the way they celebrated their best days. Why? Well, sailors uh, said, you can't do anything about the past. It's done. You better learn about it. I'm an historian. That's my whole living. You got to learn about it. But you can't change it. And so whenever I hear people uh, groveling about that, well, the worst sin of Lutherans is uh, Luther's own projection of, of anti-Judaism. Uh, today we call it anti-Semitism. But anti-Judaism, um, he said awful things. When he's young, he thought the Jews were great because they gave him words to translate the Hebrew scriptures. But when they failed to convert, he thought everybody convert. And they didn't convert. He really, uh, oh, you can burn our synagogues, you can do all that stuff. It's terrible. Now, every Lutheran church body in the world today has, quote, repented and made very clear that's not our teaching now. And I can't remember when I last heard any overt anti-Semitism in Protestant pulpits. It's there, but it wasn't the main thing. But you can't change that. So what's the second question? Alas, what did I do that was so bad? which is really important to know, but you can't change it. That's that's done. Uh, if I uh, messed up my marriage or changed my kids wrong or did anything like that, I sure better learn what I did so I can change it now. But I can't change back then. And the third thing, then, is to ask, uh, what what did I do? What kind of per- person was I that I could do that? Hmm. Okay, that's getting closer. But number four is what kind of person am I today that I'm capable of doing that now? If I'm doing anti-Semitism now or racism now or cheating now or anything like that, um, I need a change of heart. And Luther believed and taught and made that his hallmark that no matter what's been there in the past, you can, by the grace of God, uh, by your repentance, you're responding to God's action that's already occurred. And that, I think, was the heart of it, and that's what was in the point of his 95 Theses, and often forgotten in Lutheranism and Protestantism and everybody else. But if you want to celebrate the Reformation, 500th anniversary, you ask for a change of heart. The Greek word metanoia is a turning, and the Hebrew word for shuv, uh, repenting. In every case, it re- involves a change of heart, which is a gift of God and a way of serving God, and serving the other. I'm just a man trying to understand how to love you. With the heart of a sinner, I can't be your sinner.
was a treat to hear you <laughs> say all that. Thank you for all that. Um, one of the things that that I that I noticed in your in your book and when when you talk about the Reformation is um, we talked about this this idea around you know who can read scripture and how do we read scripture the idea of uh, you know interpretation but closely linked to that seems to me to be in, within the reformation this this idea of you know authority so like who has you know who can interpret the bible really came down to a question of who has the authority to interpret the bible so the decentralization or the you know the giving back out of the priesthood of all believers the you know anybody can do this the you don't yeah. need the Pope. You don't need the church. This, this seems to be a very germane thing right now for a generation that um, is finding itself in a situation where it has a real problem with authority. You know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the spirit of, of this um, authoritative focus of biblical interpretation right. in the Reformation. Well, you're exactly right about it. If you read in, in the scriptures, uh, who's asking you to repent? Uh, it wasn't a priest. It was uh, a shepherd of Tekoa <laughs> named Amos. It was a, it was a, a uh, servant of the king named Jeremiah or Isaiah. Um, but they weren't a separate cast of people. Uh, Gary Wills, I don't know whether his name is current among you, but he's quite a good, a good journalist and uh, Catholic theologian. And uh, he's made a great point of, in a certain sense, Priesthood is in the Bible, but it's a kind of an invention as far as authority is concerned. Uh, Jesus never appeals to it. In fact, he's always fighting priests. Mm. Uh, but it, it but it developed. There were just enough things that you should go and when you repent and start it over. But the priest became the dispenser of it. And when you give people that kind of authority, they can do all kinds of things. It wasn't just the Pope. It's the... Uh, down the block, uh, your own local parish priest could put anything on you, and how could you get away with it? Why? Because, well, God had given him the authority, and he has the authority from the church, and he had the books there. So for Luther and most of the Reformers, it was a drastic change when they say, yeah, we need priests, <laughs> and we got them, mm. millions of them, because as many Christians there are, are priests. Wow. And uh, the gifts that were given through the church was that and I read a book not long ago by, by Gary Wills to whom I referred called Why Priests and uh, he's speaking as a believing Catholic saying well, if you want to reform the church you have to downplay the uh, monopoly that priests hold and I think uh, in, in many ways the current Pope uh, leans out that way uh, his most famous line is who am I to judge but he also always finds a way of reaching out to people who aren't a part of the club. He's not hes not a heretic, and he's not a maverick, uh, but he's back to the uh, biblical authority as opposed to uh, what we set up with our laws and regulations. One of the things that I, I would love for you to uh, more or less kind of give your opinion on is, because is, obviously, you know, Martin Luther back in those days, I think he lived into maybe his early 60s before he passed away. And obviously, the life expectancy was a lot, a uh, lot lower um, in, in that period of time. But so he 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 never you know could have foreseen um, you know the the result you know the uh, that the Reformation had and that the Lutheran Church would become long after his death. But I wondered um, if you if you could speak a little bit about maybe kind of the counter issue uh, with this whole idea of sola scriptura. Um, in, in regards to the fact that now we have people who 
you know, the common people who have access to the Bible, but maybe aren't, you know, trained in, in uh, hermeneutics or, um, you know, being able to read it, uh, you know, from, from its context and, and some of the issues that have come along with that. Was that something that he even thought would be a possibility or was that kind of beyond uh, his, his thought process at that point? Well, I think he had a creative or naive view. I think he thought that anybody, uh, a peasant, he, he loved the peasants, uh, women, anybody could, could read the Bible and uh, receive the gift of salvation along the way. And uh, he, he brought catechisms uh, so that young people could catch it. And he taught literacy with that along the way. A great deal of trust in that kind of thing uh, was hard for us to picture today is the uh, the breadth of his vision about the gospel and the narrowness of his cultural vision. Uh, Luther really believed the world is going to end very soon. Uh, whenever he talks about reform, he's really talking about what today would be the size of uh, the county from which you and I are speaking, a little bitty part of uh, what became Germany. Uh, we've got to be sure we're doing that right. And he rejoiced when he heard of people doing it well somewhere else. But he didn't have a great big scheme of it all. Uh, again, I, I think I'd use the word creatively naive. The, the, the peasant kid, the woman who changes diapers, the farmer behind the plow, uh, all they need to hear is the message of what God has done for you in Jesus. And so he loved parables and so on. All this got pretty... Uh, solidified in doctrinal teaching, I'm not going to knock it because I'm technically professionally a theologian, but the professional theologians can really parse this out very tight. Yeah. That he believed in object, objective justification or subjective justification. And I found a delicious passage in Luther where he said one time, uh, oh man, I have to preach justification by faith. Oh, I wish I didn't have to preach it. Why? Because when I do, I can see the people's eyes glaze, they fall asleep, they visit with each other, and so on. So, so uh, I, I can write books of doctrine, but preaching is something different. And so what do I do when I preach? I tell stories. And uh, to this day, uh, Luther's sermons, a great Yale scholar some years ago, Roland Bainton, put together all what Luther said about Christmas time. And uh, it's not of course, he believed that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and so on, but he didn't worry about all the details of it. <laughs> when, when he gets to the story of the wise men, uh, we've seen a star in the east. He, he, he pictures, well, why, why doesn't everybody catch it? Well, God turns that star on and off. <laughs> you, uh, you, see, you see it and you don't see it and so on. Uh, he, he used his imagination never to depart from what he believed was the core thing that uh, God is the great giver of it all, and we're the great receivers. His last word uh, that people overheard when he repented and ready to die, Bettler das ist wahr, we are beggars, that is true. Uh, what you do is we beg and God supplies, not we impress and God has to be awed. Wow, that's a timely, that's a timely word, I think, for everybody. You know, one of the things that... Um, struck me when you were talking early on about how the, you know, the conditions were just right for all of this to happen when, when Luther did this thing. Um, and you, you said, you know, people were ready for change 
And you said that there was a new technology that aided in communication, you know, obviously the print, printing press. I couldn't help but reflect on what we're going through seemingly right now in a very, very similar in some ways, or, you know, at least it is for us who want to draw the correlation, you know, who want to notice that. But uh, we sense that people are ready for change. And, you know, we can't help but think with the advent of the Internet um, that there's similar conditions and, and maybe even some would say a similar thing starting to happen right now. And as somebody that has dedicated a great deal of time and effort into researching what happened 500 years ago, I was wondering if you'd care to comment a little bit about the similarities and the differences of what's happening right now. Okay, all, all reform, uh, July 4th, a date familiar to us, was reform in, within the British Empire. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there were plenty of people who thought, well, here's how it would work, very serenely. And then chaos erupted, a war erupted, people brother against brother, all, all kinds of that kind of stuff happens. So uh, you can never uh, control it completely. Uh, some things in the Reformation have been defined as lightly organized chaos. Um, you just couldn't spell out what the Bohemians are supposed to do and what the Italians are supposed to do. But you preach the gospel and see where it takes you. And uh, now I think a lot of that's true now. There's a lot of chaos. It can be uncreative as well as creative. Uh, I think, for example, in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, uh, Latin America, for example, where uh, uh, the Catholic Church in Brazil, the most Catholic nation, has been declining, just like uh, Protestants have been declining in Europe and, and in America. So what happens? <laughs> Here comes Pentecostalism. And uh, you can't stop it. Now it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't all match up. You know, if you're getting direct messages from God, it isn't always going to match what what God taught you through Saint Paul. But that seems to be part of the price you pay when the times of change come. And I think yes, there's a lot of chaos with the internet. Uh, I I almost resist reading any blog or, or responses to this because it's just all over the place. And yet, through it all, something's happening that leads people to fresh discovery in in Africa and uh, many parts of the U.S. too. Now, uh, I, don't, I don't endorse it all. I don't agree with it all. But I think that uh, we can see something happening. I think the apostles would say the Holy Spirit is moving and changing things. And you can't nail it all down right away. You can argue for the right things, you can uh, revise. Uh, when I watch what a good bishop does, what a good pastor does, what a good lay leader does, they uh, want you to celebrate uh, the boundlessness of the love of God and the uh, creativity of the Spirit, and yet they always know that it doesn't take too much for a charismatic individual to uh, carry it off in strange directions. But that's the risk you take. Mm. I prefer that. I prefer that to having everything nailed down. <laughs> yeah. Seems it seems like a lot of people want to always rush to having everything completely nailed down. Yeah. It doesn't work. If it, or if it works, it takes such a, a kind of authority that it contradicts the gospel you're doing preaching. Mm, what do you mean by that? Uh, if you put the clamps on prematurely, where 
what happens to Joan of Arc? What happens to all of the uh, martyrs? What happens? Somebody came along and said, you can't do that. Years, centuries later, we read them and say, hey, they had it right. Uh, women, women religious in the cloisters in the 14th, 15th century, they were silenced and penned up, as it were. And today, uh, graduate school where I would teach divinity, uh, not only women, but uh, men, too, would rather read the Mechtel of Magdeburg and Julian of Norwich than they were a lot of the uh, theologians who nailed it all down. And certainly, uh, they'd read them rather than the jurists who had canon law figured out. Is the sun not as bright just because of the night? Well, nobody's afraid when it starts to One of the things I definitely want to hit on, uh, touch on, and we kind of get into this a little bit earlier, but part of the drive for Luther to become a monk was his this preoccupation he had with hell and God's wrath. And there's a story, of course, of the uh, the lightning storm and him praying, um, and you know, like God, please, you know, please save me from this from this storm, and I'll I'll, I'll go into the uh, I'll become a monk. Um, that's something I think a lot of people, especially a lot of our listeners, can identify with coming out of kind of that sort of background where, with this preoccupation of, of eternal damnation and, and God being this kind of angry God yeah. that we have to appease. Um, and yet, you know, one of the big things that Luther did for all of Protestantism um, was this uh, grace through faith, not by works. And, yeah. and yet, right. why do we not, why is it that we don't seem to be able to practice this? It's, there was a book very popular 50 years ago by Eric Fromm called Escape from Freedom. Uh, it's kind of terrifying to be able to have all these choices and options. Mm. Uh, one thing in, in conservative religion, in fundamentalism and so on, is, is it is all nailed down, and all you have to do is prove to yourself that you're proving the right thing to God, uh, whereas real freedom is, is dizzying. Uh, when you bring up children, you yeah, you can beat them into shape, but you haven't helped to form a free, creative human being. So I think that that's a standard thing still. In your comment a moment ago, you said he, he did this for Protestants or he did it for Lutherans. Uh, what he did on that front is very widely accepted in uh, Roman Catholicism today. Uh, we're spending uh, a lot of time, <laughs> if anybody's watching television and so on, they got to come up with one day when the Pope himself is in Sweden and holding a service, not a mass, they can't do that, but a joint prayer service with the Archbishop of Sweden, who happens to be a woman. Uh, there's nothing in the book against that, although a lot of Protestants don't want women preachers and so on. Uh, they would all figure it out again, nailed down. So um, the uh, Catholics uh, some years ago the Pontifical Commission on this stuff said, on justification by faith, we and the Lutherans agree on this. Uh, didn't solve everything. At the end of my book, I point out things that weren't solved yet. Uh, women priests, uh, not, you know, they don't agree on this. Several things like that. But for the most part, uh, I can go to a Catholic seminary and uh, preach at chapel and uh, it won't be very different from what they heard from their own uh, 
priest the day before. So there have been tremendous changes there mm. in uh, the Reformation. It's not just confined to uh, a church body or so. What are, what are some of the things, I'm just curious, just personally, you know, all this, you know, study you've done and, you, you know, you're so well-read, historian, pastor, and you've seen so much change um, over the past few decades. I, I'm wondering, you know, what are, some, what are some of the things you think we need to pay closest attention to right now in, in the current age? I, I'm, I would just love to hear your wisdom on what we need to be careful about. What, what do you... I- in one word, I think we have to be careful about indifference. Uh, I'm often on programs where somebody was called one of the new atheists is there. Um, well, a certain percentage of people in America like to use that word about themselves. Um, but the real problem is not atheism. A good atheist makes the believer think more clearly about what she believes. Uh, just indifference. Mm-hmm. Indifference to, uh, to structures. Um, it isn't only churches that are having trouble. The Boy Scouts have trouble. Uh, the, the Masons and Lions Clubs have trouble. Uh, everybody has trouble because we're not ready to see common purpose. We're indifferent toward it. And uh, wherever you see that uh, there's a good thing going on, it's because people are recognizing that what's at stake is pretty important. Um so I, I would say that if, if I were, I guess I do. <laughs> mm. If there's one thing I have to uh, keep on all the time is to tell people, I don't care how you get it. You can get it by reading um, novelists. You can read uh, uh, poetry. You can watch the right television. And if it poses the things that are a big part of your life, and you say, oh, I have to pay attention to it, um, then you can start moving on into more regions along the way. So I would start with with that. Um, I wouldn't start with the moral flaws because they they would follow if you get through. If you're right with God, uh, you won't agree on everything on morality, but you will uh, be leading a life that is, I guess we would say, pleasing to God and good for your fellows. So I, I would start there. Uh, people take seriously what's worth taking seriously. And very often I watch something uh, in the comics, on television or whatever, that goes over the edge and uh, trivializes what is really important. And I have enough pastoral years in me and enough admiration for good priests and pastors to know they see up close what it's like when you're... Uh, Husband abandons you when your kid uh, uh, messes up or whatever. What you learn there is to take all that seriously. And so uh, when you have good priests, good pastors, good lay leaders, uh, they're teaching you that these things matter. The other thing I think would be is uh, something, a gift of the Reformation, that is often forgotten in the churches. I mentioned it earlier myself when I watched people slouch back from the the Lord's table of communion, mm-hmm. uh, the joy of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I want to know what the Reformation is about, uh, I might read Luther, but I'd more readily read, listen to Bach and sing uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and go somewhere where the great organ is opening up and, and is there. Uh, or I might go to a, a nursery school 
in in our Bible class, uh, uh, I, I I attend. I don't on principle don't teach it. I'm a member. <laughs> but I was sitting there last week uh, uh, during the school year, uh, the Sunday school congruent with adult classes, and that ended last week. So all of a sudden, a couple kids start showing up, and one sitting next to me. What are we going to do? I said, draw me a picture. And he draw, drew me a picture. It's really worth it, probably better than what I was thinking about without it. In other words, I have great faith in what children catch about uh, Jesus' gospel and the freedom that comes with it. And when you beat up children verbally or any other way, that's one of the worst things you can do because they're at a stage where everything's open for them, mm. and uh, we should walk into that. So there's a great, a great joy uh, in all the you know, Bach cantatas and uh, such things. And uh, summer camp. Uh, talked to a woman in an elevator here whose little son is heading off to a children's summer camp. I happen to know that one. And I know exactly what goes on there. They have good times. They swim. They play. They make pictures. But they also are learning the meaning of the gospel, and they can carry that the rest of the year, and it makes a difference. Uh, so, well, my summary now is you fight against indifference and you replace it with joy That is <laughs> because the, you have a cha- changed heart. <laughs> that is sage, sage advice. I mean, if we could just all just stop and think about just fighting against indifference, because I do think that the technology that we referred to, the Internet, with all of its options and all of its information and all of its ability uh, renders a lot of us comatose and anesthetized to the things that are actually happening in the world in flesh and blood and powers and, uh, you know, th- injustice. And um, I just, yeah, I really do think that indifference is become, that's sage advice. That's sage, think, sage uh, advice. Yeah, we, we, we can't single out the Internet as being a whole problem, just as Luther didn't say print was a problem. You ask, how can we, in the midst of that, mm cultivate better things. Yes. And uh, I spend some part of every day, things come up that I learn from uh, that are good. But when people tag into the end, they're all, well, all, very often, uh, they're bullies. They beat each other up. And uh, that's why I like any place where there's face-to-face and where you meet the other and deal with them as they are, failed yes. as you are, and hopeful as you are. Yes. You know, there's one, there's one other part of the Reformation that um, I'd like to just get your thoughts on and, and hear about the past and maybe draw a corollary to, to the present. And that's one of the adages of the, the Reformation is, you know, the Latin, ad fontes, you know, back to the sources, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like there's something in that that just continues to breathe new life. So when, when a new place and a new people and a new time go back to the sources, ad fontes, from a new situation, it's almost like there's new life. There's new information. It's not just, you know, like what, what our parents all taught us growing up in Sunday school. You know, the Bible's alive. Yeah, 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 mom. Sure, sure, sure. The Bible's alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. But when, when you actually go ad fontes, when you actually go back to the sources in a new situation, it, it, it breaks off the calcification of freezing any one um, particular time's 
experience with the sources and making it the be all end all for everyone. Like we all need to continue to go back. I just, could you give me your thoughts on that? Yes, indeed, very much. Uh, I, I live in that world, and uh, in 50 years of teaching it, 60 years of teaching it, uh, I always, I could never get over what it is when when the kid, student, has what we call the aha moment. Um, it often, because something happens in their life, I've always liked the campus ministries, where you have people in, on the campus, and there they are, first time, they're hearing all this stuff about uh, science and so on. And in the midst of it all, something happens that they say, aha, that's what it's been about. And uh, any way you can cultivate that. That's why I like the arts. That's why I like music for it. That's why I like children. I wrote a whole book once about children because they are our masters on this front. They they see things that we don't see. And uh, I think that's that's a big a big part of what you need to reform the church today is the recovery of some of that. I don't necessarily believe that all the fontes, all the fountains are going to get us on, on the right path, but uh, what I called creative chaos earlier, uh, it, it gives you openings for the Spirit, and uh, that's where your aha comes in along the way. When it's all nailed down, you, you can't do much with it. Right. They have it all figured out. That that doesn't do much. Mm-hmm. And if you read the uh, the biblical prophets, uh, my own favorites would be Micah and uh, the latter part of Jeremiah, Isaiah. What do they do? They uh, they retrace the history of Israel, of God's dealings with Israel. Then they see what went wrong along the way, and then they uh, uh, Jeremiah says. Uh, They've been they've been in captivity for a long time, and now uh, you could tell they're on the verge of getting to return. And of course, what do you do when you return? Uh, of course, good believers, you go back and build the temple. No, Jeremiah says, "Thus says the Lord, you should go back into the land and uh, plant gardens and uh, enjoy the produce, build houses and live in them." Give your children into marriage and enjoy the grandchildren. That's what God wanted. He didn't want uh, just a new, new fabric of the old. And I think that's what we're looking for now. So whenever we find a novelist, uh, a poet, um, this, this week uh, my wife and I have been reading to each other the writings of Brian Doyle, who was uh, died this week way too young. Uh, he was campus pastor uh at Portland University. He wrote things like poetry, and the Christian Century magazine would print a lot of them. And he always saw things that we never saw before. A couple of nights ago, my wife was reading something, and she choked up suddenly because Doyle found something we'd never seen before. So I'm a great fan of anybody who uses the imagination of literature and all that goes with it. Uh, and, and music, music, music. Uh, Every time you nail it down, uh, of course you formulate, of course you make sense along the way, but that's usually handed over to authority who then pounds it on you and there's no room. And uh, the spirit needs room. So we we just have one last question uh, before we go here today. And uh, I thought it'd be interesting to ask um, if Luther were alive today and would be assembling what would become his 95 thesis, 
what would what would the the issues be that he would be concerned with? Um, speaking to the uh, the Catholic Church, little C Catholic, of course, the Universal Church. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> the gospel itself. Uh, it's all over the place. It's in all the texts and everything, and yet, uh, why don't we catch on the uh, the way we think only of ourselves first? Uh, I don't want to go into the politics of today, but uh, <laughs> you, you hear you hear everybody talking about uh, that they've got it right, and the other people have it all wrong, and pounding uh, away at it, and it's always um, selfish. It's uh, which party is going to deliver more to you, uh, and so on. Which party can rule out more people, et cetera. Uh, and I think that we have to take every chance we can. Uh, there are good things that can happen through parties and in parties. But so what we really have to ask is, who is on the other end? Who are we talking about? Who is left out when we uh, mess up uh life savings and pensions and all that. Uh, that sounds very practical-minded, and yet uh, I guess one of the things I'm always thankful for is that all the delightful years I had in the classroom, always over my shoulder was the recall of a dozen years of pastoral ministry and involvement in active parishes, because then, then there's, a, there's a face uh, behind it, and uh, I think Luther would work very hard on that. He never got tired of uh, talking about it. Think, think of what it was that, that, that he married. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he helped free some nuns. These are peasant girls whose parents forced them in because they couldn't feed them otherwise. And, uh, and now they're breaking out. And uh, he, he found good husbands for a lot of them. There was one left over. What are you going to do? Well, he ends up marrying her. And um, boy, you can learn a lot from their relation. She was uh, uh, she was really uh, like a dorm mother and a dean of students and everything else. Uh, she raised the geese and uh, and uh, tended to the well and kept the books and uh, did the inheritance and all that. Um, he had more fun talking about what his Katie, the German word for chain, is Katie. My my Katie, my chain, my Katie. Uh, saw that that they weren't seeing otherwise, and uh, how often he quotes a child in his sermons and so on. Uh, so I think he would, wherever things are rigid and hardened up, uh, he would say, we might have to have some chaos along the way. Uh, and uh, I, I could see this in, in my own bishop in the Lutheran Church. I could see it in the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, and I could see it in in the Bishop of Rome, I see it in many as theology profs, songwriters, and so on, uh, in which they break apart the incrustations that come inevitably when you think you got it right. <laughs> so, uh, again, the, what the child sees is what we all have to see. And I think the greatest uh, scholars I've known uh, were those that uh, they, they knew so much, but they saw what it meant to the individual. Uh, Martin Luther somewhere says that the most important word in the Mass is the word for you. This bread is for you. This blood is for you. This uh, forgiveness is for you. 
You can have all the Latin words and German words and English words you want, but it hasn't scored unless the person knows it's for you. I can see no better way to end this episode. That's that's that perfect. Was, that was <laughs> flipping gorgeous. Well, I, I enjoyed chatting with you, and uh, and uh, now I have to check. I'll ask what kind of person am I that I fail to see this most of the time. <laughs> Good to talk to you both. Oh, thank Great. you so much. This has been an honor and a privilege for us yeah. and all of our I listeners. Like, I like what you're doing. Okay. Thank you very much. Grace and peace to you. Dream fulfilled brings life to it. How do you know when to let it go? Or hold on tight for a miracle. All those times I hoped and prayed, my time would come, but never came. When you want something, we just got taken to school. I mean, dude, <laughs> sharp as a tack. I feel like. As much as I thought I knew, because I grew up Lutheran. Yes. And as, as like studious as I try to be, I feel like I just learned so much. Oh, I just like how, um, how in tune with what is going on and what's important in spirituality right now, how, um, how focused on love he is, how focused on acceptance he is, how focused on meeting people where they are. There was a lot of similarities, I think, between almost like James Martin, who's a Jesuit, yeah, Catholic, and Martin Marty, who is, you know, Protestant scholar yeah. of the Reformation. I mean, love shines through, man. Love's universal. It's, yeah. Geez. Some people just get it. And so is humility, by the way. His bit, like, where, where he was talking about um, the, just the way that people kind of, like, uh, physically and emotionally respond to the act of taking communion. Yes. I thought was, like... Well, I never even thought about that. He's like, you can't do anything about the past. No. He's like, the only thing you can do is is really like dig into who am I going to be today and going forward. So like for all you people out there that are feeling shame and guilt for something that happened in the past, no matter what you did, number one, keep in mind that like when it says in the Bible that the, the, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of grace is free and there's nothing you need to do for it. Right. Uh, number one, keep that in mind. Number two, and, and so again, that, that means everything. Yeah. doesn't matter what you did. No. Number one. Number two... Like, there's nothing you can do about those things in the past at this point. And so it's all about, like, turning inward now. Yes. And thinking about, like, okay, so starting now and moving forward, who am I going to be? So if you weren't loving enough or you weren't caring enough um, you or know, giving enough or whatever, you have the opportunity starting now and moving forward to be the person that you want to be. Like, yeah. there's, no, there's no it's too late kind of business. Like, you can start now. Yeah. And I, I just loved what he said about that. Mm. Dude, that's good. Thanks, man. I know. I just, <laughs> I, you know what I love, man? I love that um, we get a lot of diversity on this show from, from different voices from, you know, all over the spectrum. So fun. But in age, too, because, you know, Martin Marty ain't exactly like a spring chicken. Yeah. You know, he's been around a while. He's in the Brugie Bug Club. And, and <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Brugie Brugs. That's right. Um, but like, oh my gosh, man, you want to talk about somebody who is still current, still with it. And, and here's why. And this is kind of like, obviously a tangent. He is doing the work that he's called to do. He is staying in touch with his passion 
that connects him to people in the world that need his voice. I mean, there's no way that this guy would be as vital as he is right now if he wasn't you know, still connected to this beautiful, important work that he's continuing to draw out new insights, new nuance, new wisdom, new application. Oh my gosh. Well, well put, man. I love That's that. I mean, I remember hanging up with him and being the, the only thing that really stuck with me from like a, an impression standpoint is like, I hope that if I get to live that long, mm-hmm. I am still as passionate. Yeah. You know, we get criticized for being a little overly enthusiastic. <laughs> That's the elixir of life, my friends. That's right. That is the elixir of life. <laughs> Martin Marty is freaking proof of that. I'm, pro- I'm producing my own dopamine right, right now. <laughs> I don't care if you think I'm too enthusiastic because I am going to outlive your ass. <laughs> Adam will live forever. (laughs) (laughs) Just you wait. Coffee and dopamine, dude. That's right. Natural. Oh, man. But that really stuck with me. I'm like, stay passionate. Stay curious. Yeah. Stay hungry. Stay stay humble. Yeah. And and keep giving it out there as a gift to people. Yeah. You don't don't retire from from seeking to be a better person, seeking to love, seeking to, to find truth. You don't retire from that. No. You keep doing it. Yes. Love it, man. Love it too, man. So, you know, for, for those of you that are all over the place on the, on the spiritual spectrum, hopefully hearing somebody talk about something that happened 500 years ago that you probably think is an obscure bit of nerd history uh, was able to speak to you on this episode. And we're, we're happy we could get them on. Thanks for, thanks for setting that up, John. Sure, man. I'm trying, to, trying to switch it up as much as possible. So um, if you like the music again on, on this week's episode, um, this is uh, our buddy's band, uh, two of our our good friends, uh, Tim Skipper and uh, Stephanie Skipper, husband and wife duo, um, otherwise known as Copper to Lily, uh, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, love those guys, so appreciate them letting us use their music for this episode. And as always, um, go reach out to them, check it out. It, it'll be in our show notes. We'll add it to our uh, Spotify playlist. Uh, so if you search for I think it's uh, music to deconstruct by or the deconstructionist podcast. One of those two, you'll find us on Spotify. Anyway, (laughs) well, uh, happy 500 year reformation anniversary. And, and just let that be a reminder to all of us that, you know, the cry of the reformation was semper reformata or reformandum or whatever the Latin was. And it just means reform and always keep reforming. So what we're doing here, the fact that you feel uncomfortable on your spiritual journey, the fact that you felt spiritually claustrophobic or breaking away from your tradition, you are in good company. This happens and it keeps happening. It's a part of the journey. It's a part of all of our stories. It's important enough for the fathers of this reformation to be like, this thing can never solidify. It's got to keep moving forward. And I think that's a good reminder to all of us. Absolutely. And, and thank you guys uh, for all of you that have already jumped on our Patreon campaign. Um, we really can't thank you guys enough. Like beyond all of like the, you know, the stuff we're giving away or whatever, like ultimately at the end of the day that says to us that what we're doing means enough to you guys to the point where you would take some of your hard earned money um, and and put it towards this podcast so that we can keep this thing going and and do even better things and more special events and stuff like that. So thank you guys so much. More, 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 more stuff, more content, more things to do, more things, more fun to have more projects. Yes. So thank you guys. Yes, thank you guys. We love you guys so much. For now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Happy Reformation, everybody. Don't you run ahead now. Don't you get too far. Leave me in the dust.
Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.